Matthew chapter 1, 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and he will send them there at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Good morning. Blessed to see you this Palm Sunday. Uh, The event here in Matthew 21 um, begins what's referred to as Passion Week. As our Lord deliberately sojourns to his preordained destination, the cross. So this, nevertheless, this earthly coronation was without royal adornment. Devoid of of musicians, dignitaries, elaborate ceremonial dress, and without a military escort. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the very image of the invisible God, whose birth was in a stable, has his coronation by way of riding on a donkey's colt. This king. Now, juxtapose that to the arrival of the President of the United States in any city in America. It is quite a spectacle. He, as you know, is afforded an incredible motorcade led by local police, secret service vehicles, two or more limousines, press vans, and a counter-assault team. Listen to this. The presidential limousine is fitted with five-inch thick military-grade armor, wheels that can run on flat tires, Doors that weigh as much as a Boeing 757 cabin door. A fuel tank invulnerable to explosions. The car is sealed against biochemical attacks. Equipped with an oxygen supply. The lower part of the front bumper is able to emit tear gas and fire a rocket-propelled grenade. An an anti-tank missile can be fired remotely by the countermeasures suburban that follows. Kept in the trunk is a blood bank of the president's blood type. 
rightly so. I mean, you know, rightly so. The outside crowd can only be heard through internal speakers. That's for the President of the United States of America, whoever he may be. The Lord of glory. The creator of the universe. Enters Passion Week mounted on a donkey's colt. Yet everything that happens in this account has intentionality to it. May we never make the mistake, beloved. Never, ever make the mistake of seeing Jesus as a poor, helpless victim in the hands of sinners. Never see him like that. I want you to know that all Jesus' actions are deliberate. The entire week, the Passion Week, he is the one who's in absolute control. In everything that is before him, he's in control. Knowing very well the time appointed before the foundation of the earth that he had to be crucified. In verses 1 through 3, our attention is drawn to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verses 4 through 7, Jesus reminds us that who he is and what he does is rooted in Old Testament prophecy. And then in verses 8 through 11, Scripture, the living word of God, forces the question, who exactly do you? Say that he is. Noting Matthew's words of verse 10. When he entered, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? You must know who he is. So that you can be certain that when you die, you'll be where he is. First, our attention is drawn to his person and work. Jesus and his disciples here are making their way into Jerusalem. It's Passover. One of the three mandated Jewish celebrations where Jews would make pilgrimage back to the great city of Jerusalem from distant parts, wherever they were, they would journey in. The population, according to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, would swell from half a million to 2.5 million. So add to that, okay, the event itself, some, if not many, were in a state of great excitement because of what Jesus did back in Bethany. Just days earlier, raising Lazarus from the dead, as recorded in John's Gospel. Now, had they not been in Bethany to witness the resurrection of Lazarus, by now they certainly would have heard about it. So add to that event the, the normal excitement that, goes, that comes with, pa- with, with the Passover. Uh, there was a buzz in town, to say the least. So in the context of all that, having raised Lazarus from the dead, stirring up all this excitement, you can read about that in John's Gospel, chapter 11 and 12. The Sanhedrin were there. 
the religious leaders of the day, they wanted to kill Lazarus because on account of Jesus raising him from the dead, more people were believing on Jesus, so they wanted to kill them both. So in context to that is something very deliberate that Jesus does here. And the first is he rides in on a donkey's colt. That's the first thing. He never traveled on horse or donkey that we know of. For what we know of Scripture, he walked everywhere. So just that in itself is or would seem mysterious. So by entering Jerusalem this way, at the Passover, he is evoking a display of interest for him from the people. He is in control. Fully aware that their enthusiasm over him is going to provoke the religious leaders. He's going to force their hand. To do what? To kill him. He's in control. He's in control of your life. He's in control of this service. He's always been in control, and he will always remain in control. He is the sovereign. He's the same yesterday, today. Amen, glory to God. Now, throughout his ministry, as you know, Jesus oftentimes pushed attention away from himself, as far as the Sanhedrin goes. When people would become converted to him, confess him as Messiah, the Son of Almighty God, he would say, don't go and say that out loud to anybody. Instead, go back to your hometown and declare the things that God has done for you. He never encouraged the attention of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But in this final phase of his ministry, beloved, he intentionally is provoking their attention. Jesus is no victim. Never see Jesus as a victim. That is a skewed, unbiblical view. He's initiating a kind of crisis response here on the part of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees and Sadducees have long been jealous of Jesus. We read that in the scriptures. Because of envy, they sought his death. They sought to stone him on numerous occasions, but they could not. Why? It was not his time. Now is his time. So entering Jerusalem this way, he forces their hand. To, to respond to him on his own terms and his own timetable. That's what he's doing. For now, the appointed time, the appointed time of the Father has come that he should be offered up as a sacrifice for sin. Verse 1, notice they came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now, Jesus had just spent a day and a night in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They had this big feast. And, you know, Bethany served as a holiday in for Jesus. And he would oftentimes lodge with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These people were loving. They loved the Lord. 
They opened their home to the Lord. And there was Jesus. So from there, he sends two of his disciples into the village. And he says, when you get there, you'll see a donkey and its colt tied up. Untie them and bring them to me. So Jesus, as you know, always made it a habit of sending out his disciples two by two. It's a good lesson. They were sent on this very specific errand. And again, this was preordained, beloved. And verse 3 says, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, Notice, the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. Now, many a commentator has suggested that this was kind of a password for Jesus' friends. And it may be. And if so, it remains the, pa- the, 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 the password for all Jesus' friends. If we claim to be disciples, whatever possessions we have, they're his. Your time, your talent, your treasure, it's all his because it comes from him. And we're stewards of it, amen? amen. You're stewards of your spiritual gifts given to you from God, the Holy Spirit. The money you earn, it's a gift from him. And whatever time you have, time is not your own, amen? Amen. Whatever you're doing, we do it for the glory of God. Now, Mark's gospel tells us in chapter 11 that when, when they told them that Jesus said this, they let them go. There's their faithfulness right there. They let them go. So this is the password of a king, and they pay homage to the king, and they release what's theirs for service unto the Lord. Only a king could commandeer an animal like this without suspicion of stealing. He says it, they let it go. So there then, beloved, is a snapshot of the attention drawn to the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on this, what begins the week of the Passion. Here now in verses 4 through 7, Jesus reminds us that who he is and what he does is rooted in the prophecies of God. Old Testament prophecy. Verse 4, this took place, riding in on this donkey, in this donkey's colt that is, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now, he, he no doubt understands that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Amen? He knows this. After his resurrection, people were tripping out. Two disciples on the road. What are you distraught about, said the resurrected Lord? What, are you only one that has not heard all this that has been done to this Jesus we thought was Messiah? So he takes him aside in beginning with Moses and the prophets. He speaks to them these things concerning who? Himself. He unfolds the Old Testament of all these prophecies that, that point to him. He is the fulfillment. In this instance, it's Zechariah 9.9. I read from it earlier. Notice verse 5. Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. So he's deliberately taking this passage and fulfilling it in the eyes of his disciples. This is remarkable. So that's the second reason he enters Jerusalem this way, he must. He must fulfill scripture. Imagine throughout the life of our Lord, 
how many times he must have mulled over the Old Testament scriptures, those that spoke of him. Imagine this. Imagine all the crucifixions that he witnessed outside the gates of Jerusalem, knowing what he was destined for. Amen? Imagine this. From his childhood, 12 years of age, left back at the temple. Joseph and Mary, they, you know, they go a day's journey, and they traveled with family, so they didn't realize he wasn't with them. They go back a day's journey back to the temple. There he is. Stunning. The religious leaders of the day. And what did he say to his mother? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? So here in verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So here's a, a colt. It's tied to its mama. And you just don't jump on a donkey. Donkeys are stubborn. Donkeys might kick, they might bite, or they just might sit down and not move. That's why animals such as donkeys and horses have to be broken. But look who's sitting on him. The prince of peace. No jostling here, amen? As scripture said, he fulfills it and he rides into town. So here now he's ascending up to Jerusalem with a deliberate pace, with a deliberate purpose to suffer and die as our substitute. Going up, not to be made a king, beloved. He's going up as a king. He's ascending to Jerusalem as the king of kings. He is Lord. And he is moving in order to receive his kingdom as a reward for obedience to his father. This is part of his obedience. So here the king has come to bring salvation to his people, riding a donkey. This is a rather pathetic sight. You want to picture Jesus on a stallion with pedigree. A mighty charger dressed in armor. That's how kings ride into town. Imagine early Christians reading this gospel as they're circulating. It gets, to the, it gets to those believers in Rome. They weren't here. They're used to seeing Roman generals riding in after battle on marvelous, mighty stallions. King? Castalians represented strength and power and success and victory and their muscles just glistening. Galloping with elegance and poise, right? That's how kings ride into town. They couldn't imagine Caesar riding into town like that on a donkey's colt, right? So although Jesus designs this event to show himself as the promised king of kings, he doesn't enter town as a conquering king. Not as a conquering king. In fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, the Messiah enters Jerusalem 
as a humble king sitting on a donkey's colt, not a triumphant warrior on a horse. Now, beloved, there is a great contrast to this, isn't there? Beloved, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19, verse 11, heaven is opened up and behold, this vision given to John, a white horse, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, beloved, in that scene, heaven erupts with praise. The time of the new Jerusalem is near. Two great feasts are described in that chapter. One is the marriage supper of the Lamb for God's redeemed people. And there's another supper in that scene. It's called the the, the great supper of God. And it's pictured there, the great supper of God, with birds eating the flesh of the enemies of Jesus Christ. The great supper of God. Judgment. Birds of prey, vultures, eagles, tearing the flesh of kings and princes of the earth who reject this king. Two suppers. Babylon has fallen. That's the picture in Revelation. Jesus is pictured riding in full regalia with armies following him. And we say, amen. That's what we read. We say, amen. That's how Jesus should be pictured. Amen? Amen. That's how he ought to enter the city. Not on a donkey. But that horse, that white horse, is future. Because before Jesus would wear that crown of victory, he would bear the cross of shame. He would wear the crown of thorns. Because scripture said, scripture declared, scripture prophesied that he must. So proclaiming himself as king, proclaiming himself as Messiah, he arrives arrives into Jerusalem on a donkey. The, The crowd saw this, although it wasn't on a stallion. They did see this as a kingly gesture, and they did what they do for kings, spreading their garments out before him. We read of Jehu. 2 Kings 9, verse 13, where he's anointed king. It says, they took garments, and they laid them on the steps. And he walked over top of them. So this passage, beloved, provides not only evidence of Jesus as God's promised Messiah, but it also reveals some unexpected qualities about the Messiah. Look at it closely in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, notice, this this is awesome. Behold, your king is coming To you. You see that? It's the first thing that is stressed, that he is the people's king. He is your king. He doesn't ascend as a conquering tyrant from abroad. He comes to you, for he is the people's king. He comes to them. He comes for them. He comes for their benefit. He came for you. He came for your benefit. So even the picture of him riding on a donkey stresses here, uh, you know, not an outward steed or conqueror, but he comes with gentleness. He comes with peace. He comes with graciousness. Not in war, not in judgment. He will. That's what we read in Revelation. He will. 
the second time. But here the first time, he comes to bless, not oppress. He comes to set people free, not to crush them. When he comes again, he will crush his enemies. All of his enemies put under him as a footstool, right? He comes as a king, but he comes in humility, riding on, and this is a borrowed donkey. A borrowed donkey's colt. He enters in Jerusalem. This is the God of the universe. This is the one who sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, riding into Jerusalem on a beast, no bridle, no saddle, only garments of his disciples, of his people. He enters in. Now, in verses 8 and 9, as we read this, there is a, a seemingly royal response, is there not? As he draws near to the city, the multitude, they begin to sing praises, Hosanna to the son of David. They knew that through the line of great King David comes Messiah. So they sing, Hosanna, save now. This is a psalm of ascent. Save now, save now, Hosanna. So as they came together, the enthusiasm of the crowd here begins to build. The people start throwing their garments on the ground before him. They break branches off of trees. They take palm branches. They throw them down before him. He enters into town as a triumphant, conquering monarch. In John's account, we read that they break branches off and they hold them up before him. That's a picture of waving these palm branches, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed, that is to say, blessed is the one God has sent to us. Hosanna, you are the son of David. You are the king, the promised one. Now, in their ignorance, beloved, in their ignorance, the majority here are making the right proclamation, but for all the wrong reasons. At this point, they're likely thinking in terms of the Maccabean revolt 170 years earlier. When the temple was rededicated in 167 BC under Judas Maccabeus, and at that time, palm branches were raised in celebration of this heroic leadership, the outcome of which was what's known as the Feast of Lights, or we know it as Hanukkah. When Simon Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem in 141 BC, history tells us that he was hailed with music and the waving of palm branches. Okay, so from that point in Jewish history, the palm branch became the sign of military triumph. You see this? Now, the crowd, they're absolutely right. But it won't be long and they'll be absolutely wrong. Amen? So not surprisingly here, the, mass, the masses, the majority hail him as king, and the majority, days later, will say crucify him. 
Because their expectation of what Messiah is going to do was limited in their minds to the restoration of Israel's glory as a nation. They weren't thinking about their sins being atoned for. They weren't thinking about victory over sin and death. They saw this, in, this entry of our Lord Jesus Christ as liberation from Rome. The resurrection of national pride. So they're right in their response as Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, but very wrong with regard to their expectation of what he will do when he enters the city. You know, sometimes Christians, they have certain expectations about what they think God should have done for them or ought to be doing for them. And sometimes you'll meet very embittered Christians because their expectations of the Lord on their behalf haven't been met with common everyday life. Relationships, jobs, mediocre things. Those things are important, but nothing compared to this. The forgiveness of sins, the atonement made on the cross. That he is the king who's conquered sin and death. We forget that. We take that for granted. So when our expectations aren't met, we become embittered. We think he's not acting on our behalf. This is what they expect. Hosanna, save now, save now. They're not talking about spiritual salvation from sin. The majority do not understand. Instead, they're crying out, save us now from the oppression of Rome. Set us free from this earthly condition. Set us free from this discomfort. Set us free from the domination of these pathetic Gentiles, these dogs. This is what they're thinking. So the crowd applies Jesus to Jesus the words of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, a messianic title, the agent of the Lord, the coming of the king of Israel, blessed is he who comes. That's a Jewish idiom for welcome. Amazing, isn't it? They hail him, king. Verse 10, notice. Now the scripture forces the question, who exactly is he? Who is he? Acclaiming him here as the Messiah, come to Israel. The people of Jerusalem are certainly all stirred up. There's a lot of commotion going on here. That doesn't mean everybody was equally enthusiastic about it, though. Not at all. They were wondering, what's all this commotion? Now, those who didn't know, they heard the stirring. They said, what's all the commotion? We, we learned the big question in verse 10. Who is this? You see that? Who is this? Who's this guy coming into town, creating all this fuss? This is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth. The prophet. Now, beloved, Jesus coming demands a response. Jesus coming demands a response from everybody sitting in here. Everybody within earshot of this message, Jesus coming demands a response. And if you think that he was just a good prophet, think again. That's dangerous territory. 
just a mere prophet. Islam thinks he was a prophet. Islam denies that he died. He's Allah's prophet. Who foolish Christians foolishly think he actually died. He didn't die. That's what they teach. Did you know that? All roads don't lead to heaven, friends. Jesus said, I'm the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Coexist? Really? Yeah, you can coexist as you declare the truth. You can love people and show them love, but point them to the truth. We don't coexist thinking that all roads lead to God, friends. You don't coexist that way. Not according to Jesus, the king who came and the king who humbled himself, the king who came out of heaven and took on a human body in order to be crucified, dead, buried, raised again, ascended. It's Passover, right? Or it's Passover here. We're celebrating Palm Sunday and we'll celebrate his resurrection next week. And on Friday night, we'll look at him who was crushed. No coexisting as far as walking arm in arm on the road to heaven, friends. Amen? He is the truth. So in verse 3, he was drawing attention to his person and work, making claim to be a king. Verses 4 and 5, he draws further attention to his person and work, rooting his claim in the fulfillment of Scripture. Now he demands a response from the people in Jerusalem. And naturally, the result for you is that uh, he demands a response from anyone who reads this passage, anyone who's hearing this passage. You must decide. Who is this? Now, there are a number of responses in this crowd to Jesus. Now, most of the crowd was very positive about Jesus, but they were superficial in their knowledge about Jesus. How do we know that? By their answer. Well, he's the prophet of Nazareth, of Galilee, Jesus. He's much more than that. Now, they may have meant, or some of them may have meant, that, oh, he's the prophet promised by Moses in Deuteronomy. And they would be right. But clearly, as their support melts away later in the week, their knowledge about who Jesus is is revealed for what it is, superficial. A lot of people are going to show up at Easter next week at churches all over this land. They don't believe he is who he claimed to be. You get that? They just show up for tradition. God help them to see the light. So God help preachers to preach the truth, to set the captives free, because it's only the true preaching of the gospel that sets the captives free. Amen? Now, it's important for us to understand the lesson we learned from this. It's not enough to think positively about Jesus. You know, a good guy. You know, let's try to follow the Judeo-Christian philosophy of life. You know, adhere to the golden rule. No. You must bow before this king. On the last day, it's, you, you, you know, no one is going to say, but Jesus, I had positive thoughts about you. Jesus, you know, I did this in your name. And you know what he's going to say according to Matthew 7? Depart from me. I never knew you. You claim to know me. I never knew you. Frightening. 
frightening. The question is, have we embraced him as the son of God? Have have we embraced him as the only savior of sinners? Have we acknowledged him as who he claims to be? And personally admitted that we're sinners in desperate need of grace. Which means unmerited favor. There's not one thing you can do to earn your way to heaven. Nothing. You must bow before this king in full surrender and submission and trust his work and his worth so that you can stand before Almighty God as justified, declared free from all blame. Amen. Positive thoughts about Jesus are nice, but they will get you nowhere on the last day. Jesus said this, who's ever not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, you could say this, who's ever on the fence is against. Period. To be undecided is to be decidedly set against him. They're singing Psalm 118. They're singing praises to him. And the majority will change their mind five days later. You know, Peter, the apostle Peter, cites this same psalm, Psalm 118, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, speaking of Jesus as the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone upon which the entire building depends. All of Christianity depends on him. The cornerstone. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter, on this rock... I build my church. And the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. It cannot stand against this movement. I am the cornerstone. He's the rock. Beautiful, isn't it? So Peter, he has that in his mind. He knows that he's rejected by many. For some, you know, this stone is rejected. For others, this stone is stumbled over. For all true believers, the scripture says he is a chosen and precious stone. Amen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A stone rejected by many, a a stone stumbled over by others, but embraced by God's true people. Listen to this. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen precious. Now, one of the consequences of Jesus as the great cornerstone that he is, is that we as his people ought to offer sacrifices to the Lord. First Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. You know what we are? As redeemed people, we, beloved, are heralds of declaring the praises of God because we are redeemed. Notice, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter, notice, draws that out of Psalm 118, the very psalm that they're singing to the Lord. The crowds around Jesus are praising God. 
Peter is declaring praises to God, the maker of all things, the one who's explained to the Father to us. Jesus has exegeted the Father. Jesus came to... You want to know what God looks like? You have to look at Christ, his son. What is God like? Look at Jesus. So they sing praises, but their perspective is skewed, beloved, because they think Rome is the enemy. Rome is not the enemy. You know what the enemy is? Satan, sin, and death. That's the enemy. So the true enemies of God that had to be defeated were not pagan Gentiles. It was sin and death. That couldn't be done on a white horse. Amen? Amen. That could not be done on a beautiful, armored white horse. Instead, it took humility. It took the willingness of the second person of the Godhead to lower himself and come in the form of a servant and submit himself in full full obedience, ultimately to receive the punishment of God that's due to sinners like you and me. That's humility. So we look at this and we say, Lord, no, 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 not like this. Show them who you really are, Revelation 19. That's me. That's what I say. Show them Revelation 19. The Lord pats me on the head. No. This is how he had to come. For low, wretched, miserable, condemned sinners like me. This is how he had to come. Low. He came by way of self-denial. He came cloaked, beloved. This is the the Lord of glory came cloaked in a human body like this to bear this punishment that we'll see on Friday. Philippians 2.6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Only by receiving, beloved, the worst that sin and death could throw at him, could this Davidic king, the promised one, outmaneuver our greatest enemies. Sin, death, and Satan. He outmaneuvers them. You talk about a master chess player. This is his divine plan. You know, Satan thinks he's going to gain the upper hand here. Sin and death think they're going to gain the upper hand here. Let's put the Son of God to death. They knew who he was. The demons always knew who he was. You're the Son of the living God. And then he told them to shut up. And they had to. They had to. Simply believing he's the Son of God means nothing in and of itself. James tells us that even the demons believe in what? They tremble. They know who he is. They know what he's done. They know where he is in glory, ruling and reigning. So only God's wrath could be satisfied by crushing the son, this king, this promised one. So here he enters this magnificent city, this city with all of its redemptive significance, This city with all of its history, it's during Passover, no less. And he's moving towards, beloved, get this, the temple of God 
where God is worshipped. What do you say about himself? Tear down this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. That temple, the physical temple, pointed to him, the true temple, beloved. So here he is. He enters into Jerusalem. And Mark tells us, okay, he's going to go in and he's going to turn the tables upside down, right? He's going to... He's, he's going to attack the temple. He's going to attack the religious system. But he doesn't do that, Mark tells us, until the next day. Triumphal entry on a donkey. He rides in. Mark tells us he enters the temple. He looks around. He observes. And he sees utter spiritual darkness. It's turned into nothing but a religious establishment. My house, said Jesus, shall be called a house of prayer. For who? For all the nations. He arrives in Jerusalem. The very city whose religious leaders and people will betray him. The priests of this religious system and their constituency will be the instigators of his mock trial, beloved. So here he came to this fallen, sinful world to give his life as a ransom for who? Many. Many, thank you. Many. For all? No, many. To die for sinners like you and me. He'd be despised and rejected by men. Smitten, oppressed, afflicted, crushed for our iniquities. And this is how he rides into town. And this is all to present you as living stones. You see, friends, you are the temple of the living God. The church. He's the cornerstone. So while the people greet him saying, Hosanna, save us, most of them do not want the kingdom he offers. The crowd in the end did not want Jesus to rule over them in the way he designed. And that's the same problem to this day, friends. Some of you are sitting here and you hear this and you've heard this for years. And you're doing this to him. Your hand is out. You're resisting him. And you must be very cautious that in resisting, you don't come to the place where you not only won't believe, You can't believe. In John 12, after the Passover, you know, Jesus is addressing all these religious hypocrites. And it says there in John 12, as you read through the text, it says they would not believe. And as you read through John 12, it goes on to say, They could not believe. They could not. If you don't want to think that you can just push Jesus off, you know, after I'm done living my life in my 20s, then I'll, you know, I'll do this thing about accepting Jesus. Please don't think like that. Please take warning. Beware lest you find yourself in a place where you can't believe. This is what happened to Israel. They cheered and they yelled, rah, rah, hosanna. The majority, as you know, didn't believe. 
The kingdom they wanted wasn't the kingdom he was building. And let me tell you this. His true coronation came, beloved. And I wrap up with this. His true coronation came. Look at Revelation chapter 1. He came lowly when he was here, but when he died and he raised and he ascended, let me show you what he looks like or what he is like now. Don't make the mistake of thinking that when we read this, this is what Jesus looks like, friends. This is what he is like. Notice. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 12. John's given this revelation, right? He's, he's on the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God. And God gives him this vision. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death in Hades. To get that, he had to come like he did in Matthew. This is what he got for that. He rules. He's the one you will stand before. And he's either going to say, enter in. To my rest. Good and faithful what? Servant. Or he's going to say, I never knew you. Who do you say he is? That's the question. He rules, he reigns. The first time, he came humbly, lowly, on a donkey's colt. The next time, he's not coming back on a real horse. That's a picture of a conquering king who comes to crush his enemies. No one will stand. You'll either be with him, or you'll be against him. Choose this day who you will serve.